be. I think it's worth more than $36 million and that it should be open for the public to go see and admire. So, you know, people continue just to learn this history and hopefully, you know, the country continues to move into a better place with race relations. And this is obviously a very important piece in that history. All right, guys, that's all the time we have on the Daily Sport Report. I'm David Carlson for Alec Geese, Emily Harrard, and Adam Broadnax. Good night and go blue. Well, uh, good evening, and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Jim Dwyer is off tonight, so we'll see him next week. Which is kind of unfortunate that he's off, because I was briefly going to talk about the miraculous uh, good luck, fortune, whatever you want to call it, that the Wings had in making the playoffs for the 25th straight year. Yeehaw. I don't care that they backed into the playoffs. I'm glad they made it, and they even are getting a little bit of a break in their first round play in Tampa. So we'll see what happens. I think the Wings uh, deserve to make the playoffs, um, simply because in the last five games, they won three and lost two, and Boston, despite beating us head-to-head, won two and lost three. That's called mathematics, and of course... Hockey has all these weird uh, one-point uh, s- scenarios and whatnot, so we can thank the fact that uh, Ottawa beat uh, the Bruins on Sunday and allowed the Wings to, as they say, back into the playoffs. I don't care. We're there. Boston isn't. Boston has enough sports fortune for the year around the clock, so uh, go Wings, and we'll see what happens. But... Uh, Let's be thankful that uh, uh, the coach, Blaschel, who I thought made a few uh, blunders down the stretch, uh, saw that Jimmy Howard was 
getting hot at the right moment and kind of rode him down the rapids. Shouldn't have played him Thursday night, though. That was a back-to-backer. That's when he should have gone with Morazic, just for the fatigue factor. But uh, it's neither here nor there. They're in. Boston's out. Now, obviously, a uh, very interesting week uh, with with the revelations about the Panama Papers. I think that this name is uh, somewhat unfortunate. It's obviously a reference to the Pentagon Papers. But we should never forget that the United States has a very troubled history with Panama. The Panama Canal, back to Teddy Roosevelt. Ronald Reagan, by the way, was able to use the Panama Canal treaty negotiations in the mid-70s to go after Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter um, in both the 76 uh, primary against Gerald Ford and the general election in 1980. He was arguing that this was a sign of American weakness and retreat. And I think that the Panama Canal was an example of American imperialism that we as a nation should have had nothing to do with after the Second World War, and unfortunately, we did. Um, obviously, these revelations are going to come out drip by drip, drop by drop for many, many weeks to come. And I hate to say this, if the only casualty and the only action that results from this is the politically embarrassing revelations about uh, Prime Minister Cameron of... Um, of uh, Great Britain. His father uh, owned one of these offshore accounts, strangely called Blairmore. <laughs> Wasn't Tony Blair the Labor Prime Minister before Gordon Brown? Something odd about that. Ironic about that. Dickinesque about it. And, of course, the prime minister of Iceland, uh, a country that was uh, egregiously affected by the global financial crisis that started in 2007 and really came to a total crisis in 2008, shortly before Barack Obama became president. In fact, it was in September of 2008 when this whole thing really came to a head. And, of course, recently has become a campaign uh, uh, debating point in the Democratic uh, primary. More on that later. But as for the other revelations that there are offshore uh, shell corporations uh, that can be set up in the Cayman Islands, Panama, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, the state of Delaware, the state of Wyoming, the state of... Nevada. It's not shocking stuff. Um, now, some of the names involved are very interesting. And where I'm looking for this story to go is to kind of find out why this was leaked. And the fact that there's this international consortium of journalists working on disseminating the information. Eleven and a half million documents is a lot of reading. <laughs> And uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, if the only casualty of this and the only action that results from it is the resignation of the Prime Minister of Iceland, whose name I didn't write down, but uh, <laughs> Iceland uh, sometimes amuses me because they have names and words that are almost impossible to comprehend how to pronounce them. 
There's so many consonants in there. Uh, one wonders if they're uh, what's up with the vowels in the Icelandic language. Remember the volcano a couple of years ago that had a that had a name that was so long it almost took up the whole line of a a newspaper column. Just kind of ironic, kind of funny. And uh, this prime minister uh, tried to call snap elections. And it's interesting that he did negotiate some of the uh, deals that helped the Icelandic banking system uh, get out of the, uh, the rut that they were in. Iceland, uh, as a member of NATO, people uh, forget that sometimes, was, of course, the, the capital of Iceland, Reykjavik, which I can pronounce, uh, is where uh, Gorbachev and Reagan met in 1987 to conduct uh, negotiations on intermediate nuclear missiles. Missiles, by the way, that Ronald Reagan had put into Europe himself in the early 1980s. So uh, look for the Panama Papers story to continue. Very interesting stuff about the timeliness regarding the abuse of power that corporations are engaged in globally in terms of hiding money. When you read that this sum is in the $7 trillion figure and represents about 10% of global GDP, get a kind of an idea of what the 1% are up to. One other interesting little note about the Panama Papers thus far is the fact that uh, the movie director, Almodovar, has been somewhat implicated in this scandal. I guess his brother set up the Panamanian um, offshore account, and Almodovar, uh, I think his first name is Pedro, uh, has had to cancel some movie premieres in Europe uh, while he gets a story organized. Uh, American celebrities apparently are going to be named eventually, so we'll see how this goes and what happens from this point on. In the political news of the week, uh, obviously Bernie Sanders had his biggest win in Wisconsin. And uh, I don't think this is a game changer for him simply because Wisconsin, uh, by the way, has... uh, about 4 million people less than the state of Michigan, a little more than. Michigan is about 4.2 million people more than Wisconsin. But I like to say that they're sort of sister states. They have some similar ethnic uh, uh, similarities in terms of a lot of uh, Germans and uh, Northern Europeans that live in Wisconsin. Dairy farming is, of course, big in Wisconsin. Uh, lots of Scandinavians, Finns, that sort of thing. Uh, Michigan has far more African Americans. And they also have state capitals that are relatively small compared to the size of the uh, state. Detroit, of course, is a much more important city in the American economy scheme of things than Milwaukee, which really is sort of an extension of Chicago. If you look at it on the map, 
It's almost one gigantic megapolis from Milwaukee to Chicago. But a lot of similarities. And, of course, the liberals in uh, Wisconsin, the Democrats in Wisconsin, are very liberal. They have the tradition of the progressive movement. And 40 or 50 years ago, winning Wisconsin was a big, big prize. But Wisconsin currently ranks 20th in state population rank. And I'd like to make the observation that in a couple of weeks, Maryland is going to have a primary. And Maryland, believe it or not, has more people than Wisconsin. So the delegates that are up for grabs in the Democratic primary um, are actually greater in Maryland than they are in Wisconsin. As for the, what happened with the Republicans, it's fascinating that uh, the Stop Trump movement finally got a big win, even though Cruz, I think, only got 48% of the vote. And that's roughly the ballpark number that I'm giving there because uh, I didn't look at the results after 80% of the precincts had reported. Um, but uh, Cruz got 36 of the delegates and Trump only got six. And that's because Wisconsin, on the Republican side, distributes their delegates based on this congressional formula with a little bonus for winner-take-all. And uh, now Trump is squawking. He's complaining. He's spent all of the week complaining about the process. Got shut out in Colorado over the weekend, apparently, at the state convention because Trump's weaknesses are finally being exposed. Weak in organization, has plenty of money, has a big noisy me uh, message that uh, has gotten him into trouble in recent weeks. And Ted Cruz, of all people, in my opinion, is even more odious than Trump in some ways. Trump is rude and crude. Ted Cruz is a little more polished than that. But Ted Cruz's ideas are equally, if not even worse, than Donald Trump for the future of America. So the brokered convention the so-called negotiated convention, is, of course, looking like a bigger possibility. However, because we have upcoming primaries in some eastern states, some mid-Atlantic states, and, of course, New York being the big prize next week, Trump can put a lot of the problems with Cruz away if he just simply wins on the ground. And I've been somewhat puzzled by Bernie Sanders's new complaints about superdelegates. Superdelegates on the Democratic side, of course, comprise about 16% of the total delegates, but they're irrelevant to the process at the moment. Their importance only comes into play at the convention. And if Bernie Sanders goes on to win New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut, those are some of the New Jersey, those are some of the states coming up Bernie Sanders has an argument, but at the moment, he doesn't have much of an argument. Um, I'd like to point out that uh, of the top 15 states in America, the states where an incredible percentage of the population live, to put this in perspective, New York and Pennsylvania represent about 10% of the American people. New York votes next Tuesday, Pennsylvania 
votes the Tuesday after. So there's 15 days left in the Democratic contest, in my opinion. And Bernie Sanders has to prove that he can win these kinds of states where there are primaries, where people go into a voting booth. Not the caucus system, not the state convention like uh, the Republicans experienced over the weekend with Colorado, but real primaries where the voters decide and the superdelegates, if needed, will switch sides. But Bernie Sanders has to win the games on the ground. And he hasn't done that yet. He's won some caucuses. He won Wisconsin. He got crushed in Texas. He got crushed in Florida. He lost Illinois. He was decisively beat in Ohio. He got crushed in Georgia. He got crushed in North Carolina. He got crushed in Virginia. He narrowly lost Massachusetts. And he got beat pretty soundly in Arizona. Those states that I just mentioned are in the top 15 in population. And the only states that Bernie won in the top 15 states thus far are Michigan, a very narrow primary victory in an open primary process similar to Wisconsin, and Washington State, which had uh, caucuses. And we know that the caucus system is not quite as good as the primary system, in my opinion. And I don't know why the media is suddenly calling caucuses primary contests. They are what they are, caucuses. And when the English language gets twisted around for dubious political purposes, my ears and eyeballs open up a little wider so I can pay attention to what the heck is going on. Now, one of the interesting um, kerfluffles this past week, of course, was the Bill Clinton appearance in uh, somewhere in Pennsylvania. I think it was in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, by the way, just for the listeners out there, the suburbs of Philadelphia are the sort of the real contest in Pennsylvania. That's where the swing voters live. That's why in the state of Michigan, for instance, political scientists and prognosticators can predict the winner of a primary rather quickly by looking at what happens in Oakland County, the most populous county, or I guess technically it might only be the second most populous county, but it's the swing county. Wayne County is a very strong Democratic enclave where our unions have real political strength. How interesting to see this past week, by the way, in the state of Wisconsin, that a judge has struck down Scott Walker's so-called right-to-work law as unconstitutional. Well, while the Republicans are obstructing hearings on Merrick Garland in the Supreme Court. Don't expect any relief from the Supreme Court as long as that seat remains vacant. Almost amusing poetic justice. So we'll see what happens with the right to work law in the state of Wisconsin. This is about union dues and this sort of thing. But I want to get back to the Bill Clinton kerfluffle and of course the 
the crime bill and the big debate that's come out uh, in the last several days about the crime bill, the 94 crime bill. Uh, Bill Clinton, of course, uh, dressed down these uh, protesters who were interrupting the speech. Um, I am not a big fan of interrupting public officials' speeches. Protesting out on the streets is another story. Um, I tend to think that those sorts of events can backfire. And indeed, it's sort of backfired a little bit on the Black Lives Matter. Because, of course, now we're getting the pushback. We're getting the historical facts. And, of course, the prison population in America was rapidly growing in the 70s and 80s, decades before Bill Clinton signed a crime bill that, of course, was uh, signed in 1994. And the historical facts are quite clear. Richard Nixon declared a war on crime. He ran in 68 as a, quote, law and order president. Of course, Richard Nixon's presidency was far from law and order. And I hasten to add, by the way, that there is a speaker tomorrow night speaking at the Ford Presidential Library up in North Campus. Uh, He is a Watergate scholar on the Nixon tapes. And if you have any interest in the dissemination of the Nixon tapes, because many of the tapes have still not been released, it's probably worth going to see uh, Luke Nichter, I think is his name. I've actually read his last book, uh, so it should be a very interesting discussion about the Watergate tapes up at the Ford Presidential Library tomorrow night. I will certainly be there because of my interest in the subject. But it's uh, interesting that uh, I'm going to quote a couple of things here regarding this debate uh, over um, mass incarceration. Of course, we're starting to see some realization in the body politic here in the United States, even by some of the Republicans, that locking everybody up is not the answer for our crime problem. However, our um, crime problem in the 60s and 70s was a real political issue. Um, I'd like to point out that most violent crime in America is not solved. Very few people actually go to jail. The process of putting people in jail is lengthy complicated. An arrest has to be made. Evidence has to be gathered. There are trials. There are plea bargains. And many violent people never spend one day in jail. And of course, there are other people in jail who don't belong there because they didn't commit violent crimes. But it's been pointed out by scholars that even if you took out every single drug offender out of the criminal justice system, you'd still have 80% of the total incarcerated uh, numbers here in the United States um, in jail. And, of course, where the jails are, where they're located, is connected uh, to socioeconomic reality, to uh, racial bias, to legal representation 
all sorts of factors create these miscarriages of justice in our system. But in my opinion, violent people belong in jail if they, in fact, are guilty. And that's the key question. We have prosecutors who commit political shenanigans to put in a high-profile suspect. Uh, maybe they're running for a higher office. Rudy Giuliani is one of the most famous examples of this utilization of criminal. His, his biography, his, his background as a prosecutor in New York to cachet notoriety into political uh, office. Later became the mayor of, Detroit, of uh, New York City. Interesting that Giuliani announced that he's going to vote for Trump but not endorse him. I don't know what that means. I guess if you vote for him, you are endorsing him or you announce that you're voting for him. Very strange. But anyway, in today's New York Times, just for the record, um, page A9, uh, A9, Eric Eckholm, prison rate was rising years before 94 law. Experts say Crime Act had just modest role. And then they show the graphs of the rate of incarceration. The rate of violent crime peaked in 1991. Interestingly, it came way down under Bill Clinton. Now, the incarceration rate slope-intercept started to level off a bit. It really rose in the 1980s. Why? Ronald Reagan was president. He declared a war on drugs. And, of course, there were people incarcerated on these absurd uh, disparities, for instance, between... Um, crack cocaine and uh, powder cocaine. Uh, as Eckholm writes, the rise in incarceration was driven by state laws, like the 1973 Rockefeller drug laws in New York. And it was stoked by a major federal drug act in 1986, which expanded mandatory sentences and set the now notorious 100 to 1 ratio in the quantities of powdered versus crack cocaine that uh, resulted in serious problems. Since the incentives offered by the states in the 94 law, nearly $10 billion for prison construction, on the condition that states, quote, adopt a truth in sentencing, this may have added somewhat to the prison population of the 28 states that took advantage of the provision. So what's important to remember, by the way, that most people that are incarcerated in the United States are in state prisons, not federal prison. And um, crime, of course, is used as a wedge social issue inappropriately at times. And I've often thought, by the way, that the media covers crime poorly. They sometimes do not understand the difference between the First Amendment and the right to a free, a, a speedy, fair trial. Uh, sometimes they inflame the jury pool so excessively with the overcoverage and the hype that suspects 
can be railroaded into pleading guilty when they're not guilty uh, on the advice of their attorney. Um, but our system has ways out. There are, is probation. There is plea bargaining. Many, many violent criminals are given chance after chance to fix their life, and they don't do it. Fascinating to hear over the week, you know, the death of Merle Haggard, who, of course, served a good amount of time in prison when he was a young fella. The legend, of course, is that he met Johnny Cash and got his life turned around eventually. But when you heard his interview on public radio about how he got into this predicament, he talked about having the fact that his father died when he was nine, that he didn't have any guidance at home, that he was a rebel and a ruffian from an early age, that he was hopping trains. Big deal. The hobo days are over. You hop a train and you end up in the mountains of Oregon in freezing weather, you're lucky that you might be alive, as he made it quite clear in his interview on uh, Fresh Air. Merle Haggard spoke about how he got his life turned around. I'd just like to remind you that you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'd like to thank Andrew for engineering this evening. Yazoo City Calling will be coming up shortly. But Merle Haggard, of course, got his life turned around. He told the story. He said, oh, yeah, I made beer in the prison and I got punched drunk one day and got locked up in solitary on death row. And I heard uh, the guy on death row talking about his last night. And something clicked in my head. And I realized I had to straighten out my life. And he did. And as he pointed out, he had some friends in prison that knew he could redeem himself. So crime is a complicated socioeconomic system. The American system of justice is deeply flawed, is not perfect, never has been, and it never will be. And the purpose of our justice system is to um, deal with many components of crime. And what we don't want are innocent people being jailed capriciously by ambitious prosecuting attorneys and crooked cops. That's what we cannot allow. And the remedies and reforms of our criminal justice system have to go in that direction. But I would like to point out in the area of uh, the debate over Black Lives Matter, um, and I'll just read very quickly from Jed S. Rakoff's article in the New York Review of Books dated May 21st of 2015, we can perhaps pick this story up next week. He writes that over 840,000, nearly 40% of the 2.2 million U.S. prisoners are African-American males. Put another way, about one in nine African males between 20 and 34 is now in prison. And if current rates hold, one-third of all African-American men will be imprisoned at some point in their lifetime. That's the issue regarding race and our ju the judicial disparities in our system. However, I'd like to point out, there were also a 
several thousand homicides last year perpetrated by African-American males against mainly African-American males. And that's at the heart of the big problem with the criminal justice system.